Hey, good morning, Harvest. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah as we jump into the second sermon in this series, Get Up and Work. And here's my hope. My hope is that just, just out of last week, after a time of prayer, after a time of talking with those around you, after a time of thinking through what, what God was pressing in on you, that, that hopefully God's begin to grow a burden in your heart, a passion, that, that even an, an idea of, God, how would you use me? How would you use me to change this in our world? My, my prayer is that across our church that hearts were burdened. And then that hopefully you had time as a small group or as a, as a family or as a group of friends who are watching together, time to, to talk and pray through the discussion questions at the end of the sermon. And as you started to think about what that, that burden was, that divine burden for you, that, that your heart is beginning to break for what breaks God's heart, and, and, and you're getting to that place of saying, God, use me. God, God, use me to change this. Use me to meet this need. And and for some of you, maybe that burden, that work he's called you to is going to be close to home. It, it might be something that starts in your own heart. It, it might be something that starts in your family. For others, God may have pressed in on your heart for something in our church, something in our communities, something that goes out to the nations. As we begin this work that God's called us to, what's that look like to begin the work? Now, here's the thing about those burdens that God's placed on your heart. And, and what's going to happen is it's so important for us to hear. As we begin the work, as we start into this, Satan's going to try to stop you before the work even begins. Right? He, he'll first, he'll, he'll try to convince you that it's not even a need. Come on, that's, that's not a burden. That's not a big deal. You need to know something that, that no one who starts a work for the Lord knows at the beginning what they start by faith, what it will become. Now, I think back to the, the day that we launched our church and, and Eric and I talking about how cool it would be if we could just reach a, a hundred people, what, what that would look like. And now here we are today with three locations. And just this past Christmas Eve, a thousand people attending, coming to hear the gospel. Here's another way Satan will stop you from even starting the mission. He won't tell you that the mission isn't worth it. He won't tell you that the mission isn't big enough, but he'll tell you this, you aren't. You're not big enough. You can't do it. And, and he'll stop you from stepping out because he's gonna take your eyes off of, off of the mission God's called you. He's gonna bring your eyes onto yourself, how small you are, and you'll forget that it's God who's leading, that it's God who's doing the work. That it's God who's the one who raises up and tears down. And we forget that all of us, listen, the gospel says that all of us are broken and weak. The, the gospel calls us to live a life of humility. I would say this, that, that humility needs to mark the life of a believer. Why? Because as we see life through gospel lenses, we see that all of us fall short of the glory of God. And yet Christ has delivered us. And so in everything that we do, whenever we step out for whatever work God's called us to, because we're living with gospel lenses, the celebration is not about us. We celebrate Jesus. You have to read very far in the Old Testament to see that God selects people, ordinary people from all over. I mean, you got Abraham, this super wealthy guy, but a total pagan. So often he's, he's fearful and he's weak and God uses him to be the father of nations. 
You have Joseph who's, who's stuck in an Egyptian dungeon and God uses him to save people from a famine. You have Moses who's an ex-con, who's been in exile. God uses him to, to liberate an oppressed nation. You have Gideon, this, this terrified farmer, and God selects Gideon to what? To bring 40 years of peace for Israel. You have Esther. Esther wins a beauty pageant and saves her people. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth was a young widow. Mary was an unwed teenage pregnant girl. James and John, these super rough tradesmen. And here we have Nehemiah. He's a guy working in a, a government office of a foreign nation. He's a, a cupbearer to the king, a guy who serves King Artaxerxes by tasting his wine to make sure it has not been poisoned. Listen, when Satan steps in and says, man, you're too small for this, you can't accomplish this, God has this way of finding people that he uses for his glory, and he finds ordinary people in surprising places. Now, here's the key, though, as you step in to begin this work God's called you to. You see in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter one, you see in verse six, he says this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. He says it again in verse 11, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. So here you are. You find yourself in this humble place where you say, God, I'm yours. I'm ready to be used for your glory. I have this burden I want to see you work in this way and use me, God, however you want to use me. So listen, if you're in that stage of the work God's called you to, where your heart is burdened, you're starting to lean into it, where do you go with that? Three points this morning. Here's the first point we see out of Nehemiah chapter 2. First thing is this, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Nehemiah, as a servant of God, he, he recognizes I'm just a humble servant, so he's going to wait on God in this. In fact, in verse 1, what do we read? We read in verse 1 here, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakla. It says, it happened in the month of Chislev. Okay, the month of Chislev, that's, that's November, December, that this story is beginning, where, where his heart begins to be burdened in November or December. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, here, in the month of Nisan. All right, that, that, that's March or April. So what do we have? It's been about four months from his, his heart being burdened to now the, the mission begins. Four months. He, he, he heard about a city in ruins. Heart heavy about this. But he doesn't jump in right away. What's he do? He takes it to the Lord first and he prays and he fasts for four months. You hear what I mean? He says, he says I, I had not been sad in the king's presence. We talked about this last week that, that listen, this burden begins and, and he's about to step out and he's praying and fasting. Why? Because to even be sad in the presence of a Persian king, listen, you're, you're called to reflect the glory of the king you serve. And so if you're sad in his presence, if he says, hey, how's it going? And you, you take that opportunity to complain about your job, you could be killed. So you suck it up. You smile. See, it's good. Now, especially if you're the cupbearer. Imagine you're the cupbearer. You're bringing wine that you just tasted and you have this sick look on your face. So he's coming in to talk to the king. He's, he's been doing his job. He's been waiting. He's been praying and fasting because he knows what God's called him to is bigger than him. So he's been seeking the Lord. God, would you, would you go before me on this? 
And he's about to step out in faith to do the impossible. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. It says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lie in ruins and its gates are destroyed by fire? Here he comes as a cupbearer to the king. Now listen, a cupbearer does not bring problems to the king. Nehemiah's only job as a cupbearer is to take burdens off of the king, not to deliver this difficult news. And he comes with the news of his homeland. Look at verse four. He goes on. Then said the king to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So, so, so he has, he's been praying and fasting, waiting on the Lord. He steps into this unbelievable ask to about to talk to the king and say, oh man, he's already seen that I'm sad. He's asked me what I want. I'm about to tell him what I want. And the king says, tell me what you're asking. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. So, so he said to the king, King Artaxerxes, can you give me a moment while I pray to the Lord? And he bows his head and, and he begins in Hebrew to utter this prayer. To, no, that's not how it happened at all, right? No, no, this is one of those prayers you pray when your car starts to spin out on the ice. It's like, oh, Lord, help me. Lord, I need you right now. It's this quick, fired-off prayer. But listen, listen, he's been waiting on the Lord for four months. It comes from this lifestyle of prayer. Where Nehemiah, for four months, praying and fasting, long prayers, deep prayers. And so it's not just a, oh, Lord, I haven't prayed in a long time. I better throw this one out there because I'm in trouble. No, it's a conversation he's been having with the Lord, a relationship that he has with God. And in, in good, deep relationships, you have both long conversations and you have short conversations. So he would have had this long conversation with the Lord where he's pouring out deeply his heart to the Lord. He's digging into the word to hear God's heart. And also he has those short, quickly fired out prayers of conversation with the Lord. And the only reason Nehemiah in this moment had this instinct to pray in a critical time is because he had a life of prayer. It's because he was always praying. So Nehemiah fires off this prayer. Maybe it was only two words in his mind, help Lord. And God heard his prayer and answered immediately. You see, see Nehemiah in that moment, he, he's living out Philippians 4. Right In everything by prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. In everything. Nehemiah doesn't even want to say a word unless it's God who's leading him. Constantly waiting on the Lord. And this is a hard thing. If, if you have a burden on your heart, this might be the hardest part of the journey for many of you. I mean, patience is not one of my strong points. Right, I've mentioned before, I love to play that game in the grocery line where you kind of judge what, what aisle you're going to go to. Or you're kind of going, which one's going to be the quickest way out of here? Right? It's not always the shortest line, right? Because you have that, that guy there with, with a lot of stuff and you see his hands are full of coupons. Right? You're like, I'm not choosing that line. I'm going to go, and, right? You go to Tim Hortons, you play this game, you roll in and you look at the, you look at the drive-thru and you kind of look inside the windows, which is the quickest, right? And that, maybe not just me, my patience is my competitive nature as well because I'm always timing it. I'm like, am I going to get out of Tim Hortons before that last car that I saw goes through, right? But there's this, this difficulty of waiting that we have. And Nehemiah waits for four months. But listen, that waiting is not passive. When you're waiting on the Lord, let there be prayer. 
in the book of Acts, when, when Jesus told his disciples, he said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. What did they do? They spent six weeks in prayer. Waiting and praying, it's so good for our hearts, not just to wait, but to actively wait. And so Nehemiah is still doing his job as a cupbearer to the king. He's praying. And listen, when your heart is resting and trusting in the God of the universe, you'll be able to wait for the Lord. Now he's doing something else in the waiting. He's praying and he's fasting, but he's also planning. Again, it's not a passive four months. He's, he's serving, he's praying, he's fasting, and he's planning. So, so let's not over-spiritualize everything. Yeah, it is a divine burden on your heart, but don't over-spiritualize as you begin the work. I, I mean, I was thinking about a young guy who came up to me after I was speaking at a retreat. And it was a bunch of young adults and, and a group of them, this, these guys and girls were heading out to go out to a coffee shop after the, the, the service. And he comes up and I'm like, hey, hey, bro, don't you want to go with those people there? I mean, and I'm thinking, man, you're a single guy. Hanging out with single girls would be way better than talking to a preacher. And he says this, he gets very spiritual. He goes, no, I'm, I'm waiting on the Lord to bring me a wife. I'm like, you know what? It might be better to wait on the Lord where girls are, right? Like, like go do something about it too. Waiting is not passive, right? We pursue, we, we pray, we fast, we press in, we plan. I mean, you get to chapter six of Nehemiah and you see the result of all the praying and planning. Here's a spoiler alert. The wall gets built. The wall gets built in 52 days. He prayed and fasted longer than it took them to build the wall. Wait on the Lord. The time in prayer has grown Nehemiah's faith, right? Because the, the king asked him, hey, what do you want? And here's Nehemiah, this cupbearer. You gotta understand something, as a cupbearer, you have all the insider information about the king and he's about to ask, hey, would you let me go build a rival city? And it's why he said, before he prays, he goes, I was very much afraid. Nehemiah knows if this is all on me, it's gonna be a train wreck. He needs the Lord. So he waits and trusts the Lord. Now, out of that waiting, out of, out of that faithful waiting and planning, he begins to step out into the work. He's been praying, he's been planning. And so to begin this mission, the burden of his heart, the work God's called him to, he, he has now this clear plan. He has what I would say, he has a clear vision of what the work would be. So we wait on the Lord. Secondly, define the vision clearly. Define the vision clearly. In fact, you look at what verse 5 and 6 says. It says this. It says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, He'd spent months in prayer before the Lord. He's been planning to get this clear vision and a plan. So when the king says, hey, what do you want? Nehemiah has a purpose right away. Here's what I'm doing. I'm going to rebuild the wall. He has a timetable in it. He's, he's got all the details planned out. Now, how does that happen? It happens by staying in the first point long enough, waiting on the Lord in faithful prayer and planning. And out of that time with the Lord will come this clear vision that you can define. Because listen, the... For the most of us, it's not a lack of caring that's our problem. It's a lack of clarity. 
It's not being able to clearly define the work that God's called us to. Nehemiah had absolute clarity. Send me to Judah so I can rebuild the walls. And the king asks, what do you want? And Nehemiah doesn't say, well, you know, I, I don't really know, but I've been, I've been praying about this idea, and, and my brothers came, and they talked to me about, about my city, Jerusalem. Have you ever been there? It's really beautiful this time of year. And, and I've just been thinking, apparently it doesn't look that great, and, and maybe I could go, and I've, I've been praying about it, and, and, and I don't know. I'm not sure what I would do. Maybe I'll just go check and see what it looks like. They might be able to use me. No, he's put time into this. He has a goal, a timetable, a plan. So let me ask you this. What is God calling you to do? I mean, for some of you, you're saying, well, I believe God's given me this burden for kids. Okay, well, how? How, how are you going to step out in that work? Like, which children? Is it, are those who don't have basic needs? Are, are, are it kids who have been abused? Are, are it kids who don't have homes? Or is it kids who, who don't know about Jesus? And where will it be? Is it, is it kids here in our church? Is it in our towns here? Is it, is it somewhere else in some other country? It's Father's Day today, so let's talk about dads. Maybe you as a dad, you, you have this burden on your heart and your life, and like I, I see so clearly in Scripture that God's called me as the father and husband to step up and lead my home, and, and you would have this burden, I want to see my wife and kids flourish. Okay, How? What are you going to do? I mean, have you, have you prayerfully thought through each of your kids, where their hearts are and how you want to disciple them and lead them? How you can grow them and, and encourage them? Have, have you thought about your wife's heart and where, where you can love and care for her? Like, when will you lead devotions? What devotions will you lead them in? And I'm not trying to overwhelm you. I don't, I'm not saying all this to, to put a burden on you. But listen, if you can't define your mission, you can't do your mission. I think so many of us get stuck on the work we're called to right here in this, in this place where, where we don't take the time, we won't take the time to carefully, prayerfully plan to make clear goals. I mean, what is it specifically that God's calling you to? If God's calling you to it, define it clearly. I think oftentimes we have some, some people who are really good at, at planning but horrible at prayer. Or, or we have great prayers but, but terrible planners. Nehemiah presses into both. And that clear plan is birthed out of prayer and fasting. Why is that? Because you can't lead people where you haven't gone. You can't feed people food that you don't have yourself. You need to get with the Lord and allow that, that time with him to, to grow the clarity that you need to accomplish the work that he's called you to. For some of you, I mean, that's the whole sermon right there. That's it. That's all I need to hear. Man, I gotta get on my knees this week with, with my Bible and a journal and I need to read and I need to pray and I need to plan. You see, Nehemiah had such clarity in his plans. Look at verse seven. Verse 7, he says, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He's getting his travel plans in order. He's already thought about this, right? It's not like, oh, I'll just jump on a plane and see what happens when I get there. Jesus is going with me. No, he's prayed and he's fasted and out of that come these wise plans. Look at verse 8, he goes on. 
He says, and also he wants this. He said, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's force, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the walls of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Look at this. Here, here you have a cupbearer. Nehemiah is not a, a, a contractor. It's not like he, how does he know what to ask for? How does he know how much lumber to ask for? How does he even know who to ask? For the lumber. Because for four months, he's been praying and planning. Now, here's the thing. Your plan does not have to be perfect. I, mean, I think there's something about having a passion with a plan rather than waiting for the perfect plan without passion. Sometimes just pray and move. And here's, here's what your plan is. Your plan is this. I'm going to do the, the next right thing. And we can be so overwhelmed sometimes thinking, I have to have this thing perfectly planned out and all the, all the T's crossed and the I's dotted and everything. And listen, you can start to be, be hindered and have this paralysis of analysis where, where you're trying to get everything in order and, and really what God's calling maybe you to is this, just do the next right thing. Success for you is just being faithful to do the right thing today. So again, let me ask this, what's your plan? What does today look like? What about this week? I love how this all works out. The king's like, sure, Nehemiah, you can go. In fact, in fact, just put it on my account. I'll pay for your materials. Here's our last point this morning. It's this, trust in God's hand. Trust in God's hand. I love how the end of verse eight, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. Trust in God's hand. You gotta, how understated that is. The good hand of my God was upon me. I mean, think about it. He's asking the reigning king of Persia to not just allow him to go fortify a city that, that he's already conquered, but, but what? That the king would actually provide the materials and the timber and the tools to get that done. I mean, this verse here is so good. Why? Because Nehemiah is not writing an autobiography here. He, he's writing a doxology. He's saying, I want to write this for the glory of God. His whole life is about the glory of God. He's recognizing God's hand in all of this. And I love this verse here. Because it reminds me when a burden is placed on my heart that, that nothing is too big for the hand of God. And nothing is too small for the heart of God. What's God called you to? Listen, nothing's too big for his hand. I love how Isaiah 59 says it. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. See, in that verse, the only sin, it goes on in that verse, the only sin in God moving and God stepping in, the only, the only, sorry, the only obstacle there is our sin. That's the only obstacle in, in God, God's good hand being, being on us. And so for those who put your hope in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, you grab a hold now of this promise in Isaiah, trusting in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, his ear not too dull. He cares about it all. If it's a burden to you, take it to God. Seek God faithfully. 
Again, I love how understated this is. The good hand of, of, of my God was upon me. There's no burning bush here, right? There, there's no fire from heaven. There, there's there's no, no rushing wind. I think we can get so weird sometimes and thinking that it always needs to be a tingly feeling that I get. I, I need some sign from the Lord. For Nehemiah, he's like, no, God's hand was upon me. Never mistake something that you think is unspectacular for, for the inactivity of God. Never lower the bar on how awesome it is when God works because you think it's such a small thing. Listen, praying with your kids, God's at work in that. Sharing your faith at work, God's hand is on that. Loving someone well by listening to them, God's hand is on that work. See, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were contemporaries and they're they both trying to do the same thing with Jerusalem, bring it back to, to being restored. And all through the book of Ezra, you see the same phrase over and over again. The hand of the Lord was on us. In fact, I love Ezra 8.22. It says, the hand of our God is on all those who seek him. So we wait on the Lord. We seek him for his hand to be at work. Because here's the, here's the thing, it's God's hand that ultimately matters. It's not about us. It's about his hand on the work, his hand on us. Because listen, a basketball in my hand will not win any NBA games. But that same ball in LeBron James's hand, man, he's gonna win some games, all right? It's about the hand, whose hand is on it. It's about God's grace being upon us. It's about God's favor being on us, his blessing being on us, his protection over us. I love in the New Testament, in Acts 11, Barnabas goes to the church in Antioch and it says the hand of the Lord was upon them and a great number of people believed. The, the difference was the hand of God. Well, what's that mean for us? And 1 Peter says this, says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due time he will lift you up. So what do we do? We, we wait on the Lord. In humble prayer, pursuing after holiness, staying patient before him, allowing God to grow that vision more clearly and allowing him to go before you. And what you see in the book of Nehemiah is this devoted guy who's studying, seeking, praying, trusting God's hand on him, and that makes all the difference. See, the rest of chapter two, Nehemiah goes on this reconnaissance mission. Right, he rides into Jerusalem on a, a colt and he, and he looks around for the work to be done. And then you hit chapter three and you read all the names of these people who are gonna do the work with him. He's rounding up and, and he's bringing this passion what God's called him to do. He said, you guys come help me. Now when you read the list, he's not rallying SEAL Team 6, all right? But you read this and, and he says, and this guy was a goldsmith and this guy was a perfumer. I'm picturing Pastor Matt being asked to put on a tool belt, all right? These are just ordinary people, but listen, listen, we all have a role to play in the work that God's called us to. Look what he says to this group. He gathers them together. And he says this, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So you begin to pray and plan and trust the Lord. Know this, the Lord goes with you. The Lord will work through you. But listen, listen, the Lord will not do the work for you. 
They say, let us rise up and build. So what do you do? You press into your life with Christ. You press into your marriage. You press into your family. You press into the work, the mission that God's called you to. And listen, the church will come alongside you. Your small group will come alongside you. But you need to rise up and do the work. Again, the Lord will go with you. The Lord will work through you, but he won't work for you. You see in these verses, Nehemiah's burden, you see his plan, you see his trust in the Lord. And he needs to trust the Lord because the work is big that God's called him to. The opposition is strong. You're going to see a couple guys in chapter 2 that are introduced. We're going to see them throughout the book. These guys, Sanballat and Tobias. I mean, even the name, you just hear Sanballat and you know this guy's a doughhead. Sanballat is going to step in here, right? And what are they doing? They're, They're mocking the work. They're opposing the work. They're trying to upend the work. But Nehemiah rests in the Lord. These guys stand up and try to stop the work. And look what Nehemiah says in verse 20. We then replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He stays focused on God. He says, you you guys can complain, but don't worry. God's the one doing the work. And if you're not going to rise up and build with us, you have no portion in this. We'll get the blessing. We'll go follow God. We'll work for him to see the work accomplished. Listen, we can step out and we can trust God fully in the work. Why would I say that with such confidence? Because a better Nehemiah did an even greater work. A better Nehemiah also rode into Jerusalem on a colt. He was the servant of all servants, Jesus Christ. And and as important as Nehemiah's work was in Jerusalem, it it pales in comparison to the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't build a wall. Jesus laid down his life and rose again to tear down the wall of hostility between us and a holy God. And then he did build, but not with stones. Jesus was building the church and he faced mockery. He faced opposition, but he finished the good work. Why? So that the good hand of God is now upon us. Then in Jesus Christ, you now have the hand of favor and protection of God. That if you're in Christ now, you're safe in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So so we can look to Nehemiah as a great example of a servant used by God to accomplish the work of God. But we also look to Jesus and we see his power worked out in us. That Christ goes before us. We trust in him. In fact, let's go to Christ right now. Let me pray. Lord God of heaven, we love you. We thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you for such a a super practical section of this book, of this whole book being so practical, but God, also the encouragement of knowing that your hand of blessing is on us. And so we want to live a life that testifies to your greatness and your glory. Live a life that shows your grace. Because we know that it's in you, Lord Jesus, that grace has been given to us. And so so today, this week, as we go about what you've called us to, God, we want to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, knowing that you will lift us up. 
And we pray that you'd strengthen our hands to do the good work, a work that brings you glory, a work that would bless our families, a work that would bless this church, a work that would bless our communities, a work that would bless the nations. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.